Um, the Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 12. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 2. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. May God bless the reading of this verse. Thank you, Ralph. <clears throat> Good morning. I realize I sound like death warmed over. Um, so please bear with me. Uh, on the plus side, for those of you who've been wanting a shorter message, you're going to get a shorter message today. See, there's a silver lining in every cloud, right? <clears throat> uh, want to say a special uh, welcome to you this morning. Uh, so glad that you're here. So glad to worship with you. Just had the opportunity to stand at the back while we were singing praise to God. And it's just lovely to see so many people uh, participating and, and, and lifting their voices uh, and lifting their hearts uh, in praise to God. What an what a absolute delight. Um, we are uh, working our way through Romans backwards. Um, and now we're going to pivot to sort of the start of the last major section uh, in Paul's letter. Uh, we talked last week about the vision for Christian community, and the next three messages are all about breaking that down. And Christian community, we're going to see, is, is a community that lurks, looks upward, a community that looks inward, and a community that looks outward. Uh, and so today the focus is on how do we as believers look upward, how do we as believers approach God? How do we come to him? Um, this is sort of the overview of, of where we've been. Uh, so we're, we're sort of jumping now to the beginning of chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 1 and 2, uh, and this is where we're up to in, in this part of our series. Uh, I hope you don't have too much whiplash uh, from that, um, but we'll try to do our best to be faithful uh, to each passage of Scripture uh, as, as it comes. Um, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Chris speak on Romans 15, verses 4 to 3, and we saw in that description uh, a diverse community that together with one voice gives glory to God, and that this is a praise that overflows with love as it is accelerated by hope. And Chris had those, those diagrams for us and showed us how, how basically as the church continues to to enact and embody the gospel, that the hope of the gospel increases uh, and our love just pours out, pours out. And that's kind of an overarching theme 
It's a really a wonderful section in this letter. I encourage you, if you ever sort of get stuck wondering, what's the church all about? Why are we doing it? Keep that bookmarked in your Bible, Romans 15, verse 4 to 13, particularly the end of that. You'll see Paul's vision of an inclusive uh, community um, that is giving glory to God together. Uh, we saw that, that, that there's sort of three unique things in that. There's a diversity in the church that's united by faith, an inclusive message of hope that reaches across cultures, times, uh, classes, gender, uh, everything. Uh, and there's finally a humility that's practiced in love in the church. The three things that are really, really difficult, and I, I would suggest to you that are unique in any, any sort of communal body in the world, these things embodied in the church. Um, today we're going to be asking the question, what is our community's orientation towards God? How do we come to our creator now that we know Jesus Christ, what's our posture? What's our stance? We're all here professing a faith in Jesus Christ, or we're in some way interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ, and we want to talk about what changes now that we've come to know him in how we approach God. And the big idea is, it couldn't be any more sweeping, <laughs> um, is that we're an upward-looking community of worshipers who offer our whole selves, body and mind, to God. So right now, I invite you to pray with me as we open God's word together. Father in heaven, would you speak to us today through your word? Father, may the spirit highlight for us the things that we need to hear and know. Lord, we know your word is truth. We know that there is power in your word that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know it has the ability to penetrate our very soul. And so, Lord, we pray that your all-powerful word would come into our hearts of flesh, that we might be changed and transformed, that we might not look like the world anymore, but that we would be a community of worshipers. Help us today, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, I invite you now to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. You're not going to get a lot of slides from me today. I promise we'll come back and recap at the end. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Many of you might have heard this in school. You might have been able to, you know, you might be able to memorize it. Maybe it was on one of a navigator uh, uh, card that you got, a scripture memory card. Um, but I encourage you, we're going to go slow through this because this is... This is like filet mignon, right? You don't eat filet mignon the way you eat a Big Mac, right? A Big Mac, you just, right, right, right. This is, you almost try to forget about what you're eating, just get it down, get that feeling out of your stomach and, and, and get full and, and keep on moving. But, but this, is, this is filet mignon, right? You, you, you cut it, you cut it neatly, you cut it cleanly, you eat it in small bites and you savor each bite because this is prime cut. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry. But for those of us who, who eat steak, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good piece of steak. <laughs> uh, so we're going to go slow through this. Verse 1, therefore, Paul says. Now, you might have heard the old adage, anytime you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for, right? 
therefore is, is a word that's linking and it's bringing, it's, it's taking a summary of, of what's gone before. And in this case, the summary of what's gone before is all the way from Romans chapter 1 verse 17 through chapter 11. All right? It's a huge, it's a massive turning. There's, there's breaks within that. There's subsections within that. But by the time we get to chapter 12, this is a huge turn. And with the turn that Paul is making is he's saying, now let's talk ethics. Now let's talk about how you live. He's unpacked the gospel. We're going to get there. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're not going to leave that out. But by this point in the letter, Paul has, he's, he's, he's turning it to say, all right, in light of this grand truth that's been promised long ago, that's been fulfilled, that is now available to you, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a Roman, a barbarian, whatever you are, Paul says it's available to you. After he sketched the sweeping purposes of it, that it's going to bring wonderful glory and acclaim to God, that it was planned by him from the beginning of time. After all that, here in 12.1, he pivots and he says, therefore... But he gives a succinct summary, all right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers or brothers and sisters. Now, up to this point in the letter, Paul has been talking to different groups of people. He's been talking to Jew and to Gentile. He's been talking to those who were part of the olive branch and those who were grafted into the tree. In other words, those whose salvation started with the promises that God made to the patriarchs and those who kind of came in on those promises through the door of Jesus Christ. And he said, now, in verse 12, 1, he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters. In other words, we've now brought you all together. You're all in the same room now. Now that we've established that the church is not divided along ethnic lines, along social lines, along class lines, gender lines, along anything like that. Once we've established that, Paul says, and the defining feature of the church is Jesus Christ and being in Christ, Paul says, therefore, I urge you. Now, that should tell you something. If you need to be urged, it means this is where we, this is where we respond. This is not describing what God has done primarily. He'll get there. But, but this is describing now, what's our part? He says, therefore, I urge you, and those words ought to click in with us to say, hey, we're not just talking about the past. We're not just talking about some theological truth that's long been established before the beginning of time. Now we're talking about what I do today and tomorrow, how I go to bed tonight, how I wake up in the morning. Now we're talking about our relationships, what we do in the workplace. Now I'm talking about what I do with the limited time, with the limited resources, with the limited strength that I'm given. What now? And Paul says, I'm going to implore you. I'm going to lean on you, Paul says. In other words, this is where we get to the ethics of Christianity. How what we believe translates into what we do. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What a, what a sweeping way to describe all that's happened before. So Paul's saying, I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to implore you to respond but you do the, you respond almost, Paul's like, not in light of what I'm saying, but in light of what you've seen of God's mercy. 
Literally, the word is plural, mercies, in light of the mercies of God. Now, in the Old Testament, they would write that word in the plural, mercies, but it could also be used as a collective. And I love it because it's a, it, it, it puts into focus for us that God has shown each of us mercy. There's a multitude of mercies of God. And yet it is all categorized under one great mercy that God has given to invite sinful men and women back into his presence. So Paul says, in light of... Uh, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So now that we've sort of given some context, I want to sort of lay out for you what this is all about. So the ethic of Christianity, how this translates into real life, real world, is this. It's the offering. That means the voluntary giving. The voluntary giving of your entire being upward to God as an act of worship. And in these two verses, Paul summarizes our upward orientation to God by explaining the motive, in other words, why we offer, the measure, in other words, the extent of the offer, and the manner of our sacrificial worship. The motive, the measure, and the manner of our sacrificial worship. We've already sort of peeked into this, the motive of our sacrificial worship is the mercies of God. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, God is not trying to, he's not trying to obligate you into heaven. You should already know that you're obligated to him, but beyond obligation, he's wooing us. He's shown us mercy. He's shown us love and compassion. He has taken his wrath upon, and put it upon his son so that you and I do not have to bear the wrath of God. He has taken my rebellion, every wayward thought, every sinful glance, every sinful word that slipped out of my tongue, every lie, every half-truth, every dishonesty, every word filled with hatred, malice, envy, bitterness, grumbling, plain old whinging, everything that's come out of my mouth that was offensive to him, and everything I've done, what I've set my hands to, and what I haven't done, the places I've gone, the parties I've participated in, the acts that I've committed, the joining in on things that I knew were wrong, the instigating of things that were offensive and rebellious to him, all of these things, all of these things arise from a heart that is stained with sin, the very thing, the very thing that instigated the first rebellion, that, that inclination towards sin has marked the human race ever since. And if you don't believe that, hang out with a child between the ages of like three and four, <laughs> maybe younger, maybe older, <laughs> right? And you'll see it's just instinctual, it's just instinctual. Martin Luther talked about this phrase. It was a Latin phrase. And, and he said, the heart of man is perpetually curved in towards the earth. We walk around the earth with bent backs and, and, and our eyes fixed here. And, 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 and we don't look up. 
And, and we, in, in this bent posture that keeps God out of our field of vision, we, we become obsessed with ourselves and who we are and what we want and what we want to accomplish and what my will is. And the will of God doesn't even enter into that sphere. But Jesus comes and mercifully he says, you know all that debt, God, that they've been racking up on their account? All that penalty that they, that they owe? Jesus voluntarily took it. He said, I'll pay that debt. And in paying that debt, by his blood, he cleansed our conscience and our, and our back began to straighten. And our, and our head began to lift. And we began to see God not simply as this being that we needed to hide from, but, but one who, yes, is, is, is all-powerful and almighty, but is also in his very nature love. And so the motive that Paul says, what I'm going to ask you to do, it's going to be a sweeping thing. I'm going to ask you to put your whole life on the line. But you do it in view of the mercies of God. Now, guilt is a great motivator. Duty is a great motivator. And in some ways, if there was anyone we were obligated by their very being to obey and to do what they say, it is God. As human beings, we've mastered the art of leveraging people. We hone it. We test it out in the teenage years on our parents. And we say, can I manipulate you to do this? Can I manipulate you to do that? What if I mask myself in this way and I take off the mask in that way? And, and we sort of test the boundaries. By the time we get to full-blown adulthood and we're sitting in board meetings and, and, and we're, we're sitting in, you know, in the workplace or in the classroom or, or even just in social groups, we begin to learn what are the buttons that I can push to get people to do different things? And maybe if I lean on this button, maybe if I lean on that button, let me, just, let me just lean on envy a little bit here. I might just make them jealous. And if I can make them jealous, maybe I'll get them to do what I want. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll put this finger on the button of greed and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang, hang out before them the, the, this carrot of, of wealth and all that they might, might, might accomplish and achieve. I'm gonna push on the greed button. That's how I'm gonna get them to do what I want. A big button in this culture is shame. I know what I'll do. I don't like how it's going. I've crafted the perfect comeback, the perfect one-liner, and I just hit the button, release the one-liner, and I've cast shame over the whole room and the whole space and the whole community, and guess what? Everyone's dancing to my tune. And if all else doesn't fail, we pull the handbrake. We pull the handbrake. Fear. We learn. We learn to motivate people. We learn to manipulate people. As we're bent and our backs are leaning in towards the earth, this is what we do. It's in our nature. I've done it. But here, Paul says, I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to call you to respond. But you do it in light of the mercy of God. 
I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we should, that there is anything we should do in church or in life that is not done for the reason that God has been merciful to us. That is the thing that ought to make my heart leap. That is the thing. That's the grounding of this. It's what God's done for you in Christ, which is why we need to keep teaching the gospel to each other. It's why Jesus said, as often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Come to the table, share of the communion. Why? Because we forget the mercy of God. We forget that he laid down his life. That he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that he gave his life as a ransom for me. And that now, God who was merciful to me in the past is going to continue to be merciful to me in the future. That's my motive. The mercy God's shown me. If you've lost sight of the mercy of God, and I'm telling you, it's real easy. If you've been in the church a long time and you've been serving for a long time, it's easy to lose sight of the mercy of God. You begin to think, I need to do this. I ought to do this. And that's all you think. I must, I must, I must. I have to carry on, carry on, carry on. Can't let down the side for God. Can't, can't give up on God. You know, I, I, I need, I need, I need, I need. But the mistake of the Pharisee was in their zeal for God, they didn't approach him rightly. And they thought, you know what? We are going to be right with God on the basis of us being able to perform. But you can't perform enough. You can't know enough. You can't serve enough. You can't give enough. This doesn't work like Put your life on the altar and then God's going to love you. This is God loved you. So put your life on the altar. The motive is mercy. What about the measure? Paul says, offer your bodies as the living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, some translations kind of gloss over this. They say, offer yourself. And, and I get where they're going. And, and that's, you know, that's fair enough. But the text is quite explicit. It says, offer your body. Offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. In verse 2, Paul's going to move from the body to the mind. And so he brings together these two, you could say, the two greatest facets of human existence, the body and the mind. Now we know it's not all of it, but the body and the mind. Offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. Let me tell you what this, what this means. It means the measure of our worship is not what's simply done internally. Worship is not, is not, is not simply an inward feeling of surrender. It's not merely an inward spiritual experience. Our worship is meant to be lived out. When we, as Christians, worship, that's not 15, 20 minutes on a Sunday when we're singing. Worship is a whole life. And so the measure of our offering is that the person who, who God has made you to be. 
And so I want to ask you now, are you offering your body to God? This thing, you know, the, the, I was reading this week that they, they had a saying, they had a saying in, in the ancient days that the body is a tomb. It was kind of this sort of mantra that they went, the body is a tomb. And, and back in the day that Paul's writing, the body was so dismissed and discarded that the idea was that salvation was freeing your spirit from the body. And this got played out in all sorts of weird ways some forms of Christian belief began to say, oh, well, if, if salvation is really about the spirit and not about the body, then I can do whatever I want with my body. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can, I, I can commit all sorts of whatever acts that I want to do with my body because it's my spirit that's saved. I was like, no, that's not it. But neither is salvation simply this inner peace that you have, this, this, this inner allegiance to Jesus. It's What do I do with my hands? What do I do with my time? And the resurrection itself ought to teach us that that salvation in Christ is all-encompassing. I'm standing up before you today sick this morning because I have not been giving my whole body to God as a sacrifice. Because if I was giving my body to God as a sacrifice, I would know I'm not going to throw up on the altar something that I've abused and run ragged because I'm trying to work hard or I'm trying to achieve or I'm trying to amass things for myself. I would say, no, 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 this this body is something that's actually not mine. It belongs to him and I'm going to give myself. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, Paul says. Holy and pleasing. These are, these are, um, these are technical terms to, to describe an offering. Holy meaning it's been consecrated, it's been set apart for God. Pleasing is the idea of this aroma, the aroma that would come off the sacrifice. And it said it was, it was pleasing to God. And so the idea is, as Christians, we, we go through life, and, and if, you can, if you can make the conceptual leaf, leap, we're going through life and, and in a world of, of sinful, corrupt image bearers, there's a host of them that God has said, this one's mine, he's, he's consecrated to me, she's consecrated to me. And walking around and amongst this world are consecrated bodies, consecrated men and women. They, they, they have not been added onto the altar of this world. They're not being sacrificed to the things that the world sacrifices. They are actually consecrated unto God, and they are pleasing. There, there's an aroma that ought to come off the church. God ought to say, oh, that's my church. I love when you're here. I had a funny situation this week. I was sort of in and out of home, and 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 uh, I dropped the kids off, and, and, and Joanna had to go somewhere, and... Um, and I got back home, and I could smell her perfume in the house. And I went around looking for her. And I was like, where is she? <laughs> and I couldn't find her. And so I called her. I said, are you home? <laughs> I'm like, I smell your perfume, and I just wanted to see you. <laughs> it should be like that. Like, we, like we, people get a whiff of Christ. 
God's like, I just love it when you come together. And when you all come together, it's, it's like a whole bouquet. It's just, it's just a sweet aroma. But if you carry the sacrificial image all the way, you see the aroma came from the consuming of the sacrifice by fire. I don't know if you were here a few weeks back when we were talking at the very end of Luke's gospel, how Jesus raises his hands and he blesses the disciples and how that links right back to Leviticus chapter seven. I'm gonna go Bible nerd on you for like a minute and a half. Luke links back to Leviticus chapter seven when the priest consecrated and, and the glory of the Lord appears from the tent of meeting like fire after the priest had made the atoning sacrifice and it consumed the sacrifice that they brought. Well, church, fast forward, Jesus, before he goes up to heaven, he says, after the atoning sacrifice has been made on Calvary, he says, peace be with you. And he blesses his disciples. And then he goes back, he goes to be with God in the heavenly realms, and what comes next? The glory of the Lord appears. How does it appear? It appears as fire. If we're gonna make the connection, the fire in Leviticus 7 was on the sacrifice. Where's the fire in Acts chapter two? It's on the people. Why? Romans 12, because we are the offering. So you will be a pleasing aroma to God as the Spirit of God consumes your life, as the presence of the Lord comes upon you, transforms you and changes you. The measure of our sacrifice is the person that God made us to be. This ought to be wonderfully freeing. Instead of looking at your body or looking at your personality or looking at your mental makeup and saying, oh, I should have been this or I should have been that. I should have, should have been da, da 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 Someone reminded me last night of the movie Gattaca. Anybody see the movie Gattaca? Yeah, old movie. Anyway, the, apparently the, they're, they're trying to make the perfect human in this movie. And sometimes we, we do that, right? We look around, we say, well, I should be like that. Can I take this from this person, this from this person? And no, just be the person that God made you to be. Bring yourself, put yourself on the altar. So that's the motive, that's the measure. Finally, the manner. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Oh, sorry, before I get there. This is your, some translations say spiritual. It's probably either reasonable or rational act of worship. This is a little comment from Paul at the end of verse one, that to offer your whole being to God, you're not going above and beyond. You're not like, God, I know some people write checks and some people, you know, help out at soup kitchens, but I'm going to give my whole self to you so that I get extra bonus points in heaven. Paul's like, no, actually, actually the the only right and, and, and reasonable and proper and rational response is to, is to bring all of you. Bring all of you. Because Christ didn't just save part of you. He didn't just redeem your mind. He didn't just redeem your spirit. He didn't just, he redeems your body as well. The whole you, the whole self. And so Paul's like, 
what do you do? How, how do you respond to, to a God who, who bends low in mercy and sweeps you up in his arms and twirls you around and carries you into his kingdom and washes you clean? What do you do in response to a God like that? You don't say, I'm so glad to be here. God, now tell me, what's, uh, how many zeros should I add to this check? It's an affront. When someone adopts you into their family, you don't say, great, now how much is the rent? What do I need to do to stay here? Can you tell me the chores that I have to do so that you don't kick me out of the house? No. The response when you've been adopted into the family of God is to live. Live in the house. Sit at the table. Mingle with the brothers and sisters. Have fellowship with the Father. I said we were coming to manor, the manor. Verse two, the manor. It's the response God deserves from us, but this gets unpacked a bit in verse two. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul here puts before us that there are two things that are vying to change us. If you think that you can be neutral in this world, you got another thing coming. You cannot stay neutral in this world. The idea that your core identity will somehow just sort of flourish and, and you'll just, you'll be you for all eternity and all time, that's a false idea. You are being conformed and you're being squeezed. You'll be changed into one thing or another. You do not remain neutral. How many songs and books have been written about the, the mourning or the loss of the innocence of childhood? Why do we love youth so much? I, I, I'm not going to write a treatise on this, but, but isn't it that some part of us longs to be back there before we got shaped and twisted and bent and squeezed into this mold that the world has for us? But Paul says, you don't, don't be squeezed by that anymore. Instead, be transformed. Now, I wanted Paul to say, okay, now how's that again? Transformed, okay. <laughs> the renewing of your mind. John Stott would say, and he's passed away. I didn't pay him to say this. <laughs> he said, we're transformed when we encounter the word of God through the spirit of God. And I'm like, hey, that's our vision statement. Thanks, John. <laughs> The manner of which we offer ourselves is as people who are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That word transform, it's the same word that the gospel writers Mark and Matthew use to describe what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says Jesus appeared, his face shone like lightning, his clothes were bright, he, he literally, he was some other cat, right? He was, he was different. What Paul has in mind here is not, you know, don't be conformed to the world any longer, but, but you know what, just sort of chip away and just kind of add, you know, every year just add a little you know, just add a little sanctification to your life and just, you know, add a little, add this virtue and, you know, 
this week I'm going to work on this. And Paul, the terms that's described here is that the Christian will have a mind that is, it's, it's out of this world. It's, it's different. It's not the same. You won't look at it and see the world. You'll look at the Christian mindset and you'll say, this is totally different. In fact, it's kind of blinding and irritating. It's translucent. Powerful. We'll invite the kids to come back in. Come on in, kids. I don't know if they can hear. (laughs) Feel free to let them in, Miriam. Young people, they're not. I guess they're not. Some of them are older. (laughs) The idea is that as Christians, our mind is transformed. And notice what happens next. Then you can test, then you can approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Come on in, kids. Great to see you. I got a question for you to ask your parents or your grandparents later today. Kids, ask them, what does Jesus' shining clothes have to do with us today? You can ask them that. They should have an answer for you. All right, we're going to land it here. I want you to be thinking about this. What mercies have you seen from God? What mercies have you seen? Think deeply, think broadly. Maybe it, was, maybe it was somebody saying a timely word to you. Maybe it was a song that came on when you were on the radio when you were in despair. Maybe it was the hands of a doctor or a nurse or a surgeon. Maybe, I don't know what it is. What are the mercies God has seen from you? I want to share a mercy with you. I go in for an operation a week, from, a week from tomorrow and I'm going through the paperwork and, and I'm reading all the, the stuff you have to do and there's a financial commitment page and, and you all take the big gulp with, what's this going to cost, right? Uh, and and, and I, read, I read the top line, you know, this, this operation is going to cost, you know, between nine and ten thousand dollars, da-da-da. And then I read these lines, but the doctors decided to do it all under Medicare and you don't pay anything out of pocket. I didn't even have to ask. I didn't say, hey doc, this is going to be hard for my family and I to afford, you know, would you consider showing me great? Nope. That is straight up mercy from God. Straight up mercy from God. What mercies have you seen? I didn't deserve that. What would it mean for you to offer your whole body to God? And by that I mean when you wake and sleep, what you eat and drink, what you watch, what you do, where you go, where you serve, how you apply your energy and time. Why might this be a reasonable or a rational response for you? And finally, how has God transformed your mind for his values? 
If you're walking in the spirit, if your life is on the altar and the spirit of God is consuming you, if he is filling you, if he is changing and transforming you, you will think differently. You will think differently from this world. James would write in his epistle about two kinds of wisdom. He says there's a, there's a devilish kind of wisdom, a wisdom of the world, which we talked about earlier, leans on people, manipulates, shades, changes, does all these sorts of things. And then there's a wisdom that is from heaven, which is pure and is peace-loving. Those with a renewed mind walk in that sort of wisdom. You've been very gracious with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word today. Help us to bring ourselves to you. Lord, it's going to start at the table right now. As we lay down and we confess our sins, as we confess our pride and our self-sufficiency, as we confess our grudges and resentments, as we confess our fears and our worries and the ways we're not trusting you. Father, we come before you as a people who need you. And I ask, Lord, that Windsor District Baptist Church would be a community that is on the altar together, that we've offered ourselves. We trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.